but it's the last panel of this wonderful convention. I'd like to ask you all to join me in a moment of silence for the recoveries we have been privileged to witness over the years. Amen. The Al-Anon family groups are a fellowship of relatives and friends of alcoholics who share their experience, strength, and hope in order to solve their common problem of living with an alcoholic and to help others do the same. We believe alcoholism is an illness which can be arrested and that changed family attitudes can often aid recovery. The only requirement for membership is that there be a relative or a friend with a drinking problem. There are no dues for membership. Al-Anon is self-supporting through its own voluntary contributions. Al-Anon is not allied with any sect, denomination, political entity, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorses or opposes any cause. Our primary purpose is to practice the Al-Anon program so we may help others with similar problems, aid the alcoholic through understanding, and to grow spiritually ourselves. There may be some who are not familiar with our tradition of personal anonymity at the public level. If so, we respectfully ask that no AA speaker or Al-Anon member be identified by full name or picture, if uh, published or broadcast. The assurance of anonymity is essential to our efforts to help others, and our tradition of anonymity reminds us that principles come before personalities. A few announcements. Uh, I was awake for lunch. I don't know if there are any more books available for sale in the lobby, but they had been on sale here, and they were going very, very fast. That is our new book, uh, Al-Anon's Favorite Forum Editorials. Tomorrow will be, uh, 5 p.m. will be the reception, tea time with Lois, and uh, tomorrow morning is the breakfast with Bill and Lois at 8 o'clock. And if your ticket is marked 8.30, please note that the breakfast is at 8. I had it, uh, the manager of this hotel ask me to please announce if there are any people who are staying here at the Eden Rock. He welcomes them to stay on after the convention at the convention rate. I thank you very much for your attention in all this. Uh, we have a wonderful panel for this afternoon, 12 speakers on the 12 steps, husbands and wives. And I'm going to turn the meeting over now to Paul L. Thank you very much. You folks are going to have trouble. 
the mic again. Thank you, Holly. And my name is Paul Lovgren, Louisville, Kentucky, a member of Al-Anon. Hi, everybody. I also would like, um, like to welcome you to this final wrap-up session of the 1970 International AA Conference. You know, I was just sitting there thinking, and I haven't said this for many, oh, I don't know how long, but it reminded me back in the old days, I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Bishop Persley and I were going up to talk at a industrial occasion, a banquet, and he was just in front of me, and he made some comment about the fact that I think he said we're going to use the new rostrum, something like that. And I had left Bonnie at home in bad shape. I was thinking more of that than anything else. And I said, no, thank you. I've used it on the way in. <laughs> we were mixed up. <laughs> time is flying. I'm not up here to... All I'm here for is to entertain these 12 wonderful people. You know, uh, this makes it simple for me. I love it. <laughs> I, I'm going to sneak in a couple of, of comments, though. I, I think it's very appropriate, as well as a paradox, that I have asked to be chairman. And uh, let me explain that. I don't know if Holly and the committee have realized or know of their wisdom in picking me as chairman. Now let me, no, don't get the wrong idea. But I am the horrible, horrid example, and I also hope that I'm a bit better example of both the right and the wrong way to follow the 12 steps of Al-Anon. You know, for the bad example, I stand up here and, and I'll tell you that I was the man who came to Al-Anon in 1952. And the same year that my wife Bonnie came to AA. <clears throat> and for about six years, we were both completely unsuccessful. I was the man who was there physically at meetings. And that was it, period. I couldn't buy your 12 steps. I think rather I wouldn't buy them. And those steps and the fellowship were for her, not for me. The, I think maybe I came rather condescendingly to help the girls. I, I don't know. <laughs> and how they managed to put up with me, uh, again, I don't know, but they did and gently and kindly and understandingly and they tolerated me. I think maybe you know that back in those days uh, a male Al-Anon member was rather scarce. And <laughs> perhaps this was the reason they sort of nurtured me along. I don't know. But they did and I, I thank God for their patience and their understanding. You know, in those days I was Perfection Plus, St. Paul, 
And it was a tough and ignorant and blind five, six years. And some people here today went through this with Bonnie and I. And they know. And I'm tickled to death they're here. Uh, right now I, I sort of stand in awe of the new people. So many of the new people that both men and women and, and Alateens, the young people, that come to Al-Anon and Alateen and almost suddenly they take to it like ducks to water. The, they plunge in, I think you could describe it, and they start swimming upstream. And, uh, golly, they do in, a, in just a few short months what it took me several years to do. And, and this amazes me, and I think it's terrific. You know that in those days I was a smart Hoosier from Fort Wayne, and now I'm a dumb hillbilly from Kentucky. <laughs> And the longer that I'm around Al-Anon, the less I find I know. I used to be real smart. Ten years ago, I could have given you some wonderful pearls of wisdom up here when I was the, the smart Al-Anon member. But again, getting back to these people that are coming now, I think this shows the changes that are happening. The younger generation are perhaps smarter than the old generation. I don't know. But after coming to AA for six years, we struggled. I mentioned that. This alcoholic family. And it was a family on the rocks. Bonnie said that last night. And boy, that, that's, that's a perfect description. It was the worst time of our lives. But all of a sudden, and I can't tell you how or why, after about six years, I capitulated. I gave in. I gave up. And I became an Al-Anon member. I think you could say in the full sense of the word. And this was in late 1957 or 1958. And by a coincidence, and you know what I mean by a coincidence, Bonnie's dry date is August 20, 1958. And I don't know if I helped at all. I doubt it. But I know damn well I quit hindering. But uh, <laughs> that's enough of me, I think. And that's why I think I, I feel it's so appropriate that your committee here selected as chairman one who can be the example, hopefully, both ways. Now, this is too much for a chairman to say, and I apologize for being so windy. And I think we better get right down to our panel, and that's the reason we're here. The first couple are Kay and John from Quebec, Canada, old friends of ours, Bonnie and mine, known them for several years. And Kay, would you come up here and kick things off? And I know what a wonderful job you're going to do. You, even if you just got up here and stood, I know, I know what you're comfortable with. delighted to be here with everyone in Miami Beach. I've been trying to think of something very nice to say to you as I started, 
But all I can do is shake as I stand up here, and I don't know why, because all I can see out there are so many friendly and smiling faces, and I know that you will understand. I think I will get on with this. I have been asked to speak on the first and second steps. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Can everyone hear in the back? Oh, is that better? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. <clears throat> These few words sound so easy when I say them, and yet so many of us found it so hard to admit this simple truth. I came to admit that I could not control another person's drinking. But I couldn't understand that I was powerless over alcohol when I was not the problem drinker. Understanding comes only through knowledge. And so it follows that knowledge had to come first. I learned that the alcoholic is a sick human being suffering from a disease called alcoholism and that an irresistible compulsion to drink is one of the symptoms of this disease. Now it was easier to understand that you can't cure a disease, <coughs> me. you can't cure a disease with tears, reproaches, or anger. You can't blame a person because he's sick, just as you can't be responsible for his illness. I don't doubt that many, many times in the past I made my husband feel very, very sick, but I had not been the cause of his illness. Alcoholism was described to me as being, in part, a mental obsession. The alcoholic could not resist the compulsion to drink. Then I came to the second part of this step, which states, our lives had become unmanageable. This meant stop looking at him and look at yourself. So as I thought back, I began to see that I too had been unable to resist the compulsion to stop his drinking. And even though both our compulsions were entirely different, both had been activated by the same alcohol. I now could see that I was powerless over alcohol. As the illness progressed in our home, I reacted progressively. I lived for many years in a world, excuse me, the word is not lived, it is existed, in a world in which I found no joy, no peace, and finally, no hope, simply because I had been too busy trying to control someone else's life. Failure to achieve my goal brought only frustration, resentment, and bitterness. This wasn't the way I wanted my life to be. 
So I finally had to admit I hadn't managed very well. In the second step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I was now aware that there was much in my life that needed changing, and I came to realize also that I had never completely lost my belief in a higher power. I had only neglected to use this power. So it was only when I came to the word insanity I didn't like it so well. After all, I wasn't insane. I came to take the word insanity as meaning foolish or senseless. This went down a little easier because I could certainly see that I had done some pretty foolish things, such as pouring liquor down the drain when I knew perfectly well that it would be replaced, scolding a person who is sound asleep, <laughs> then reproaching them because they don't answer you, <laughs> saying mean and hurting words when all I wanted was for this person to understand how very much I loved him. Treating him like a child and expecting him to act like an adult. After sobriety came to our home through AA, I still did know, I knew nothing of Al-Anon. And at first I went around on a night pink cloud. I was so happy my husband was sober. This didn't last because happiness on a cloud never does. I had to come back down to earth. In time, the sobriety that had made me so happy was no longer enough. I began resenting the time that was given to AA. I felt that this time, part of this time at least, should now be given to me. I was still waiting and nothing was happening. And so finally I came to Al-Anon. And it is in Al-Anon that I found the understanding that I have today. These are but a few of the many things that proved to me that my behavior was, to say the very least, foolish and senseless. I had now accepted that I was powerless over alcohol and that I had allowed emotions to dominate my life. But now there was hope. Because I believed that my higher power, whom I call God, working through Al-Anon, would show me the way to a new and a better life. Before closing, I would like to say that a few years ago, on a day that was a very dark one in my life, in a hospital waiting room, someone I loved very deeply was critically ill, and I was asking the doctor for reassurance 
He said to me, I would like to reassure you. He said, all I can say is, while there is life, there is hope. And I'm a person who has always done everything backwards. So I've turned this around. To me, where there is hope, there is life. And I thank you. When Kay and I were working, John and Bonnie were having fun going to AA meetings. John, come on up here. We'd like to hear you. Hi, everybody. My name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. To admit I was powerless over alcohol to took me some 25 years and a lot of hardship. Needless to tell you the many times I went to the hospital, but my last hospitalization was serious to the point that when I woke from a prolonged coma, I saw attendants from an asylum who I learned later were there because the private nurses would not stay in my room alone with me because they were scared. <laughs> I must say that I was admitted in a general hospital. In addition to alcoholism, I was suffering at the time from cirrhosis of the liver, a wet brain, DT, and so on. My recovery is still a mystery to the medical profession. The specialists I had told my wife and family that if I recovered, I would either be paralyzed or insane. So you can easily see that to admit I could not touch alcohol again was rather easy for me. I say easy for the simple reason that the first thing that flashed through my mind was AA, which I had gone to in 1955 for about six months. I cannot say that it was material failure that led me to AA. I still had a very secure job and I could always rely on the name of the, on my family to get another. Strange as it may seem, I never made so much money as the last five years I drank. As I said, being from a well-known family, the shame I brought to this family and my own, my wife and my son, was mostly what got me to accept the first part of the first step. Now, to admit that my life was unmanageable, I should say it in French, it's e easier, took, <laughs> took some years again and very trying 
experiences, one of which was the pill problem, which I reverted to following a severe heart attack and the departure of my only child and son from my home. Luckily, by then, my wife had joined Al-Anon, and seeing her work, her program, reminded me that I was powerless not only over alcohol, but in all areas of my life. At first, I panicked and thought I was doomed to a complete failure. But by the grace of God and AA, I was able to start on the way to recovery one day at a time. It also helped me to come to believe, not to understand, that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Not drinking and admit that I was insane hurt my pride deeply. I did not become religious overnight, although in the field of religion I had a training which I think compares to any training one can have. My mother was a pure Irish Catholic, and I was put in private boarding school from the age of five to seventeen. This speaks for itself. The fact remains, though, that I had once believed in God, and it helped me believe that I could still rely on God if I gave it an honest try. So you can see that I did have to start from scratch, and the teaching, the teaching and suggestions of AA proved to me that it, this could be done, regardless of the past, 24 hours at a time. My experience in AA and the 12 steps work I did convinced me that material achievement is not the goal the AA program proposes. Happiness, indeed, is a byproduct of a life well lived. An open mind and humility can lead us to faith, and every meeting is an assurance that God can and will restore us to sanity. Let me stress here the need for us to be active if we want to progress in the way of recovery. I would like to conclude this brief experience sharing with you with something I once heard at an AA meeting, and I quote, We do not practice these steps because we are bad people trying to be good, but because we are sick people trying to get well. Thank you. Two more old friends of ours. 
Known him for about 16, 17 years, I believe. Ruth, would you please come up here? Hi, everyone. I'm Ruth from Indiana. The third step says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Now this step comes alive because here we go into action. This step comes alive because here we go into action. We have admitted powerlessness. We have come to believe. Now we have made a decision. From the Al-Anon side of the fence, think what this means. Before AA and Al-Anon, I drifted from one fear to another. I was at the mercy of anything that held the faintest ray of hope. I was completely without self-respect and unable to make a decision. And nothing is worse to live with than indecision. This third step inspires us and reassures us tremendously. We can ask for help and guidance instead of trying to thrust our will on those around us. And what a relief for those around us, right? <laughs> we can even look around at other Al-Anons and see the living proof that it does work. My sponsor suggested to me that when I ask God for guidance, I simply report for duty, not to give instructions. Now, I needed to be reminded of this because I had been petitioning God for years and telling him what I thought he could do to make Bill stop drinking, with notoriously unsuccessful results. When we take this step, we must do it without reservations, with complete surrender, willing to accept God's guidance, whatever it may be. And sometimes God says yes, sometimes no, and sometimes wait a while. And whatever the answer, we must accept this when we take this step. Now this step also opens the door for God's power and help to come into our lives. For we stop putting ourselves first and we become willing to follow God's plan for us. It's hard to break the well-established pattern of self-will which we've acquired over the years. But a frequent review of our unmanageable lives should certainly spur us along. Now, with the taking of this step, we let go and let God, and it won't happen overnight. I find myself sliding back into my old destructive habits many times, and I have come to realize that I must take this third step each day that I live. One more point about this wonderful step three. There is room for all of us here whatever our religious beliefs may be, because it says, God as we understand him. And as long as anyone accepts a higher power, whatever he wishes to call it, he can let it guide his life. Now I have also come to realize that the more I rely upon guidance from God, the fuller and happier my life becomes. But when I allow self-will to interfere with God's plan for me, I once more find myself bogged down 
with indecision and fears. When I cannot seem to recognize God's will for me, I have found that the serenity prayer often helps me back on course again. How wonderful to be able to make a decision. What a relief to admit defeat at last and face honestly the fact that we have made a mess of our lives. How great it is to turn it all over to a God who really cares about us. How wonderful to go into action with step three. Now we continue the action with step four, which says, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now this inventory step should have been easy for me because I've had so much practice taking Bill's inventory over the years. <laughs> but it's not easy to take one's own inventory, as I soon found out. Timing is very important in this step. The first three steps must be thoroughly understood and taken first. Sometimes it's wise even to postpone taking this step until later in the program, for this action requires honesty and courage, also detachment and the ability to decide which defects were caused by ignorance and which ones by maliciousness and desire for revenge. So often, when we come to the fourth step, we dress ourselves in sackcloth and ashes and heap coals upon our bowed heads. Honesty, which is a cornerstone of our program, requires recognition of good qualities, too. And we all have a few of these, thank goodness. You know, sponsorship can be very helpful here, because sponsors seem to have a knack for finding the good qualities in us. I know I felt that my sponsor accepted me with my good and my bad points and loved me and accepted me as I was, and this was very important. You know, these good points are a foundation on which we can begin to grow in this new way of life. I discovered that I had heaped the blame for all of our marriage problems right at my husband's feet. You know, that's a pretty convenient dumping ground when they drink, right? <laughs> when I began to take my own inventory, I discovered that many of these problems had nothing to do with his drinking, but were directly related to my bad attitudes and reactions. I was an expert at self-justification and self-righteousness, and you know what a lovable quality that is. I was advised to select a few character defects perhaps the ones which seem to bother me most, and go to work on them. Here the slogan, take it easy, applies. You know, taking the inventory step is a job that must continue as long as we live, but it doesn't have to be done overnight. And I think the slogans are very helpful in doing the inventory step. They are for me. Now, some people feel that a written inventory has the advantage of serving as a checklist for progress. I myself like to do my inventory at night, along with my prayers. I try to remember that for every negative character defect I uncover, there is an affirmative one that I can work towards. Where I uncover anger, I try to make patience my goal. If depression is there, I work toward cheerfulness. If I'm apprehensive of the future, I try to remember to live one day at a time. The immediate benefit 
of the inventory step is that our thoughts are fully occupied by the effort to concentrate on our own virtues and shortcomings, and it leaves no time for taking critical inventories of others, especially the alcoholics. The continuing benefit is that it serves as a blueprint for progress in Al-Anon. You know, sobriety does not end all problems, and this fourth step, properly taken, first helps us to meet the problems of living with alcoholism. But it doesn't stop there, because it helps to meet every other problem life can bring. And what more could we ask? As we learn to know and understand ourselves, use our good qualities as a foundation to build upon, and continue to chip away at our defects, we may even begin to like ourselves. You know, really, we're not such bad guys after all. Thank you. Bill, who is coming up here, is not only a real swell AA member, a good AA member, but he's a damn good golfer, too. <laughs> Can you hear me all right in the back? <laughs> I'm Bill of Indiana. Greetings and salutation from the Midwest. I'd like to tell you just a little bit about me. In the beginning, I was a very selfish, arrogant, egotistical individual and uh, very self-sufficient, and I didn't need any help. And I was a social drinker. I drank anywhere, anytime, any place with anyone. <laughs> they finally got me through my wife's sponsor and my sponsor, which it turned out to be, into AA. I attended my first meeting, and the speaker was from a mental institution. The next speaker I went to was from a penal institution. So I went back and I told my wife, you had to be nuts or a convict to belong to that outfit. <laughs> and then some joker saddled up to me one day and he said, uh, the reason you're here is because you're not all there. <laughs> well, I said, I've got papers to prove I'm sane of you. But he didn't. I told them I didn't even understand the King's English. They was telling me, easy does it, it's killing me. And then they bring up that, to possess it, you must throw it away. Oh boy, that's great. I didn't understand that. In fact, I didn't understand about anything. And I wasn't even trying, to tell you the truth. And my sponsor asked me after we came down to the meeting, he said, how'd you like the speaker? I said, are you kidding? He said, no, how'd you like him? I said, I think he stinks. He said, why would you make a remark like that? I said, why, that man, he doesn't know any more about public speaking than that wall. <laughs> I sat up there all night and criticized the man's delivery and never heard a word he said. So you see, you don't have to be drunk to be nuts either. Then I met a friend. He said, get off the debating society. He said, I'm going to give you two little aphorisms, and if they do you any good, fine. If they don't, why, it doesn't any skin off my neck. What a gracious individual. 
he who waits till he knows the way will never move till judgment day. And he said, that's as, just as true today as the day it was written 2,000 years ago. Then he said, it's ten times easier to live yourself into good thinking than it is to think yourself into good living. I finally had found the answer. He said, I don't care what they're doing. They're staying sober, so you better get with it. If you want to be a winner, stick with the winners. And I have never forgotten that to this day. The third step made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understand it. To me, this is the key that opens the door to understanding and to faith. Once that is open, faith will automatically come forth. If you assume it is right, it will be, except you have to put it into action. When you pray for potatoes, reach for that hole. <laughs> then as you go along, you realize all at once everything's accomplished and all you've been is a messenger boy. We know at times of indecision and especially emotional disturbances, we can pause, ask for quiet, and then in the stillness, simply say our serenity prayer. I like to end our serenity prayer always with thy will, not mine, be done. I do this for a reason, because sometimes I try to run the show again every once in a while, and it's not so good. So I always remember to do that very thing. If you just add another O to God and do good by every man you meet every day, if you will do everything physically possible you can yourself, and then turn it over to God, all things that are right will be accomplished. If it is good, it will survive and grow. If it is bad, it will fall apart of its own volition. Step number four. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Well, that's a pretty tough one, really. It reminds me of a story I'd like to tell about the couple that... This woman had done everything in the world to try and get her husband to quit drinking. And he was just like me. He just kept on anyway. So finally she went to the psychiatrist. She says, Doctor, I've done everything in the world. My husband just uh, to get him to stop drinking is just impossible. He says, well, lady, he says, I'll tell you. Tonight you go home and you do everything just directly opposite than anything you've ever done in your entire life. So she said, okay, if you say it, I'll do it. So she met him at the door that night. She had his slippers and lounging robe in her hand. He says, I've bought some wonderful bourbon for you. So after you get a few shots, I'm going to have a nice steak and everything for you tonight. And she says, I've even bought some B&B so you can even have some after-dinner drinks because you like them so well. So he started and had five or six of those good bourbons. Finally, he got well enough to eat, so he ate his steak. And then after his steak, 
he had his good old B&B, and he, I guess he had six or seven of those. And finally she looked up at the clock. She says, honey, she says, it's getting late. You better go to bed. He said, yeah, I guess might as well. I'm going to get hell when I get home anyway. We drank to drown our fears, our frustrations, our depressions, our escape from guilt, and then the guilt of passion, and the more to make passion possible, foolish dreams of pomp and power. We had loads of pride, but it was all false, and we thought our resentments were justifiable. Even we could get angry, and if we didn't have an excuse, we invented one. I can remember just making some excuse to go out and slam the door just to get out. I don't remember what I was angry about, but there must have been something. I even had a psychiatrist tell me one time, after she'd convinced me that I should be psychoanalyzed, but I won't tell you that, that's too long. But he told me, he said, what, drinking is only passing fancy with you. Brother, he didn't know how fancy it really was. Now, just being honest is kind of tough. You see, after I'd been in in August, I went to, to December the 24th, and I got drunk. I was wheeling and dealing, going so fast, I really got drunk. So my wife says, you going to tell Charlie? She says, this is an honest program. I said, no, I'm not going to tell Charlie. But I knew, I didn't realize this till later on, but you get caught in the web, you know. It came next August, you see. And he said, well, I'll have your token ready for you next week. In Indiana, we give a token at the end of a year, you know. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I can't accept it. He said, what's the matter? I said, oh, I get drunk Christmas Eve. He said, you did. Well, let me know when the time is right. Old Big Mouth had told him the next day. He knew all about it. But he never said a word to me. I don't know whether he even knows that to this day, but he's sitting out there. He knows it now. <laughs> we thought that we could have uh, our, reven- our revenge on people that uh, was deserving. And we had a lot of unwarranted pride. Now let's get down to that making that fair appraisal. Put it on paper. Put it down. But don't forget to put the good down, and you'll find there's a lot of good there, too. And if it is an honest appraisal, you'll find it's a great aid, really, to clearing your thinking. Forgive yourself. Yesterday is dead. Be gracious enough to bury it, and don't ever bring it up again. Live for today. One of the greatest things of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the greatest, is just to be plain Bill. You don't have to live up to anything. Now, I'd like to pay tribute to Al-Anon because you'll never know in your wildest dream the improvements you've made in my doll, Ruthie. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's a smart woman that can see through her husband, but it's a lot smarter woman that can see her husband through. There's a difference. 
Well, as I say, it used to be wine, women, and song. Now it's Metrical, the same old gal, and let's sing along with Mitch. <laughs> You know something? I love it. Thanks and God bless it. <laughs> now you see why I love Bill so much. The next couple are again old friends of mine. I met Dorothy about four or five hours ago. <laughs> and I met her husband Roger about five minutes ago. Dorothea? My name is Dorothea. Oh, I'm scared of that. I didn't hear. My name is Dorothea, and I'm a member of the Church of Al-Anon and a very, very grateful wife of a recovering alcoholic in AA. And I'm terribly flattered to be here, but on the way over, <laughs> I realized that for the first time, I felt just nearly as bad as before Roger came into AA. <laughs> I was sick. I was absolutely sick and just nervous. And that's stupid. I know I'm with friends, so I really should simmer down. But my knees are still clacking. Terrible. Also, I wasn't too happy about the fifth and sixth step I got because... <laughs> It's not my strong point. <laughs> Only who knows, maybe today I can say my higher power knew what it was doing. I needed it. But when I first came here, came to Alamon, I mean, that wouldn't have worked. I didn't look at it as a higher power. I had lost faith totally. I, there was no good, neither here with people nor any other place in the universe. Just, it was bad. So, it, it was really tough. So I had to skip totally several steps, and that's what was good for me. It's an individual pro program, thank God. Uh, also, I had to learn also, I had to admit and to learn to admit that I, Holy Dorothea, had a problem. <laughs> when I felt so absolutely pure and saintly, the next moment I felt like a failure that I couldn't sober up that guy. <laughs> but thank God for the program today. I did get some faith. It was a very gradual affair. It started out with a group, which was my higher power, and today I can call my higher power God. And I could kind of stop, you know, most of the time stop taking my husband's inventory and instead looking at myself, which is more than a full-time job. Today I feel I do need my highest power's help to take the fourth and the fifth step. Somehow I take fr away from the fifth by, with the fourth because I'm so good in rationalization 
that, you know, I have an excuse for every one of my character defects if it wasn't for him. So the higher power knew before me part number one in the fifth step. And then I had to try anyhow to the best of my ability to be honest with myself. Now, one of the reasons I was so scared of the fifth step is I never took the step, you know, one person. I never went to confession like that, at least not the last few years. For me, it worked that I took the fifth step in the group by speaking in, and dis in a discussion. And I took the fifth step by trying to help somebody else. It brought out much more self-honesty in me when I tried to bring to help somebody else than I seemed to be capable of otherwise. I did try. I'm one who went to see the psychiatrist because I thought I'm going crazy ever before I knew my husband is an alcoholic. I was so mixed up. And at the time, I told his story, not mine. It didn't do any good. I tried the psychiatrist later again, but frankly, it was too expensive. And we have it here pretty good, you know, in our groups. It's group therapy, and it worked for me. So that's the way I had to take the fifth step, at least for today. Maybe I will sit down with somebody yet and talk. Only I think it would take a week. So... <laughs> Today I rationalized I couldn't do that to somebody. But I think I was pretty honest in the group in the overall. Sixth step, we are entirely ready to have God remove these character defects. I don't know. I'm not always entirely ready. But I do my best and... I'm a bit mixed up. Maybe you can help me. I told you it's not the right step for me. But <laughs> I feel I am entirely ready. I honestly feel I am entirely ready. But somehow God isn't fast enough to remove it, you know? <laughs> trying to tell me something, <laughs> go to work. And that's, I guess, all I can do and I will do, at least for today. And I will continue, I hope, and I know today I'm absolutely overflowing with gratitude, with gratitude to AA, to Alamon, to all my friends here, to my higher power. And moment I have something else. Oh, yes, that's my security blanket. Uh, <laughs> one more point is on here. I wanted just to mention what a big help and how worth our while it is to try to live the program in its entirety and what a wonderful thing it is when two people work the AA and Alamon program together. I'm convinced if we would be civilians and Roger would have never drank we, and we hadn't found the program, we wouldn't have the kind of marriage we have today. It helps, it has to help if those two programs are applied 
on both sides, it has to help make a good marriage. And thank you very much and salute it to the Germans. I'm so glad there are some here. Thank you. that Dorothy mentioned this German because my wife's from Germany and they're going to get together afterwards. <laughs> Roger? Thank you, Paul. Good afternoon, friends. Uh, no, in Miami you say hi, everybody. <laughs> I like that. I think that's great. My name is Roger McAllister. I'm an alcoholic and I'm privileged to be here this afternoon. Um, before I forget my manners, I want to congratulate the Miami Al-Anon organization who put such a tremendous convention together down here. I'm sure many, many people have done an awful lot of work, and my personal congratulations go out to you. Admitted. Admitted was the first word of this step that we were given. Uh, when we got a letter from, uh, from the Al-Anon General Service Office, they said, you know, take your pick, whatever steps you'd like to, to talk about. And uh, this is like volunteering for the service during World War II. <laughs> Although I had a little less trepidation about steps five and six than Dorothea, because naturally I had an awful lot more to, to work on, being the alcoholic. Uh, admitted, I recall in 1962, when I had my last drink, this was the day before I had, went to a drunk farm. And, uh, <laughs> and I recall really being ready. You know, they, they tell us that we have to be ready. And if you're ready, uh, and for me it was the right time and the right place. And I recall about the second week I was at this drunk farm indicating to the manager that, uh, boy, this, this step was rather formidable, you know, this fifth step. Would you really ever tell anybody else, you know, the exact nature of your wrongs? Well, this was before I had ever looked at step four. You know, this <laughs> uh, step four in itself uh, wasn't too bad because I took this mental inventory and I did a good job on myself. Uh, one and two uh, were easy. Uh, the word sanity bugged me a little bit. Three and four came off all right. But uh, I was still awfully sick. When I asked the manager of this drying out place, did you ever take the fifth step with anybody, and he said, no. So how long have you been sober? Sixteen years. Uh, well, do you feel this is essential, you know, to your full recovery? He says, well, I think it's essential for you. <laughs> Boy. Um, <clears throat> I said, well, would you, if the circumstances were right, take the fifth step? He says, yes. He says, I would with somebody that had about five minutes to live. <laughs> Boy, <clears throat> I 
had a sponsor that sent me up to High Watch Farm in Kent, Connecticut. And New England sends their regards to all of you. Uh, and this sponsor, I asked the same question shortly after I left High Watch Farm. I said, Ted, did you ever take the fifth step with anybody? Oh, yes, he said, I did. I was in AA several years. I had an occasion working for this outfit I was working for to fly from Washington, D.C. to Dallas, Texas. And it happened to be one of these very early morning, Wednesday morning flights, and there were only three people in the aircraft, and there were four stewardesses. And he said, I got one of the stewardesses and put her on a window seat, and I took the fifth step with her. (laughs) Now, I would call that the easy way. Um, I uh, I had really not much trouble with the fifth step after I had been sober several years. Many, many good people in AA had advised me to take the steps as they come. They were designed to go 1 through 12 that way. I was advised by almost everybody I talked to, don't take them cafeteria style. Don't take them one at a time or the ones that seem easiest for you. So I did, in fact, during the first couple of years, go through these steps, but I had a big problem. Mine, more so than Dorothea's, was the word God. I'm an engineer. I deal in statistics greatly. And I didn't want to go through a lot of transposition with the word God. So I used the words grateful, old, drunk, which was a very tangible power of example for me when I came into AA as God. In other words, the group, my higher power, the grateful old drunk, the fellow who had recovered. This is something I could grab hold of, shake a hand, and knew that it worked. So this was my God. In 1964, November, I read an article in the Grapevine, one of the many fine articles that Dr. Earl M. of San Francisco authored. It was an article on anonymity, and in this article... During the the reading time, which wasn't, I'm sure, over seven or eight minutes, I found a higher power that I was comfortable with to call God, an inner authority, an inner me. Uh, Wes talked about this last night. Uh, I didn't actually prepare anything because, you know, I learned something every day in AA. I learned the step means more to me every day as life goes by, actually. It's, it's a living experience. It's, it's, a, it's a growth experience uh, in AA. And I agree with Wes. Uh, I have this inner peace, I, inner peace along with a very rigid inner authority on how I should live my life. And I have a higher power that I choose to call God. So with step four, the most recent inventory I took out of the way, uh, it was rather humorous the way I would do this originally. I, I kept... Uh, written inventories at uh, six months uh, periods I kept them in a safety deposit box (laughs) then I started to take it every year still writing it down very cautiously and still keeping them in a safety deposit box and finally I think I really did take the fifth step with somebody about four years ago I don't believe, to the best of my ability today, I don't believe that I left out one thing 
as far as the exact nature of my wrongs. And it was a revelation. It's there for a purpose, my good friends. When you share it with somebody, you really are relieving yourself of the responsibility. But as Paul mentioned, uh, or Bill, rather, excuse me, once you go through this, don't dwell on it. You know, pass it off. Okay, we admitted what happened to us. Uh, then we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. This is, a, this is an important thing. Uh, and I don't see how you can really honestly, conscientiously go through steps four, the inventory, this fearless searching moral inventory. In this, you really have taken step five, haven't you, uh, with the exception of the other person? because you've admitted to God and to yourself the exact nature of your wrongs in step four. Okay, when you make that step and tell it to the other person, at that particular point, you're finished with step five. And then become willing. Now, you know, superficially, this seems all right, because you've been honest enough with yourself to to, uh, admit it, uh, even to another person. But now... Are you really willing to get rid of all these defects of character? Um, you know, some of these defects of character I developed over a period of, of 40 years. And hell, I enjoyed some of them. <laughs> but, nevertheless, uh, sobriety is the name of the game. And the ones that I found that I really couldn't be completely comfortable with, and this is the key word, I believe, comfort. I have to be comfortable with me today. And if I have a defect of character that leaves any discomfort in my day-to-day living, then I have to get rid of it. For this, I'm entirely willing. Thank you very much.